So we have been walking through the uh, book of Hebrews together, um, and uh, last time we got up through the uh, very end of chapter 4. We didn't finish it, but we got up to that. Pastor Chad got us there. And uh, this time um, we are, we're doing a sermon to get us ready to continue to move on. Again, one of the things that uh, we've seen with Hebrews is it is a lot of looking back at the Old Testament. And so one of the things we want to do is not make an assumption that all of us know what's going on in the Old Testament so that if it references it in Hebrews, what is it talking about? Some of this stuff is very weighted. So uh, this morning we're going to look at, the, um, at the, the role of priest, at the office of the priest. Um, so let me start by reading uh, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1. If you have a handout with you, it should be on there. In fact, I don't know I don't, uh, of any text that I'll be using that's not already on your handout. So it should be everything there for you. Um, so if I move quick... And there's some of it I won't mention. If I move quick, it's right there for you. All right, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation with to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you just for your amazing kindness again to gather us as your people. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the, the, the relationships that are here. Thank you that you have gathered a group of believers in a part of the world that nobody even knew of when Jesus Christ walked the earth. And now, in this part of the world, we are praying to send people back to where Christianity began to share the gospel. This is an amazing feat of your grace that us, lost, wretched sinners, would have any desire to gather around your word and that we would have a word to gather around is a testament to your kindness so father i pray for every soul here i pray they would realize they are not here by accident i pray that you would keep each and every one of us from, from squandering the opportunity to hear your word and I pray, God, that your word would land exactly as you desire it. And it would find fertile soil and grow. Father, we pray for that. We trust only, only in your word. So we ask these things to you, Father. We ask them through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And we pray now that your spirit would move in our midst. Amen. On October 31st of this year, we'll celebrate the 500th year anniversary. So catch that. 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So on October 31st of the year 1517, 
a young German priest by the name of Martin Luther goes and pins his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. This forever changed the landscape of Christianity and it actually forever changed the world. As you trace through Luther's life, you'll see that prior to that day, there are some important moments that helped lead up to that action. One of those moments came about a decade prior on May the 2nd of 1507. On this day, a younger Luther was to perform his very first Mass. But young Martin stumbled mightily through that event. He described later what happened for him. He says, I got to the words, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And at these words, says Luther, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, or I'd like to ask for that. I am the dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. As Luther considered himself, alongside the holiness of God, Luther, Martin Luther, was terrified. The first stanza of the first hymn Luther ever wrote reveals that. Here is how it goes. In the devil's dungeon chained I lay. Just think of those words. In the devil's dungeon chained I lay. The pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life. Sin had made me crazy. Luther found himself in a fix. While he desperately wanted to be near God more than anything else, God terrified him. So, is Luther crazy? Did he misunderstand God to be something he's not? I submit to you that Luther had full control over his faculties. I submit to you that this fix that Luther was in was a gift from God that led to the recovery of the gospel and one for which we should remain thankful to this day. It is the same fix that the author of Hebrews intends to get us in as you go from Hebrews 4 to Hebrews 5. A few weeks ago, Pastor Chad served us quite well walking us through chapters 3 of Hebrews and on in to chapter 4. If I do my job correctly 
Today, I'll advance us no further. At all. It's not hard. The assignment I've been given by our ever-capable captain, Pastor Mark, is to provide a biblical framework for the role of priest, and in particular, high priest. So, in order to do that, I, w- I want us to start with Hebrews 5.1, and then we're going to go out, and then come all the way back in. So, 5.1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, we are told that high priests are chosen from among men by God to act as an intermediary between God and man to offer sacrifices to God. I think if you walk away from here and you understand why we need priests and what a priest does, then the foundations for a right understanding of the gospel and a right understanding of Christianity have been laid. Conversely, if you leave here and you see no need for a priest, let me say it again, if you leave here and you see no need for a priest in your life, you majorly misunderstand biblical Christianity. At the top of the handout, I laid out the main argument we'll use It's a general argument that we're going to trace through first, and then we're going to take the same argument, and I want you to see it all the way through the Old Testament. The argument goes like this. Point one, we need to be near God in order to be fulfilled. Two, being near God is dangerous. Therefore, we need an intercessor, an intermediary, to stand in our place. So why do we need a priest? Why do we need a priest? First and foremost, because we need to be near God in order to be fulfilled. You will not find fulfillment outside of relationship with God. This is seen all the way through Christianity. In fact, the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to enjoy, to know, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I gave you a slew of, and this is just a small sampling of biblical text to, that, that verifies this. Let me pick two of them. I put them in bold there for you. From the Psalter, Psalm 16, verse 5 through 11. I'm just going to pick verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where are pleasures forevermore? At the right hand, that is near God. Psalm 144, verse 15. Blessed, that is happy are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So we are made, created to enjoy God, and it's actually our enjoyment of God that gives God glory. But there's a problem. God is dangerous to unholy creatures. While being near God is where we find fulfillment, 
as broken creatures, it is a dangerous place to reside. There are a plethora of texts to choose from to support this. I gave you some, but I actually want to look right out of Hebrews chapter 4 at a text that Pastor Chad walked us through last time. Verse 12 and 13. Listen to this. I know you probably hear this quoted about the Bible a lot, and it's a true statement about the Bible, but there's some, it serves as something a whole lot more weighty in the argument of Hebrews 4. Verse 12 and 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from His sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Luther said of those two verses, Martin Luther said those verses are terrifying. And he's right. Just think about it. God's Word, which is perfect, it, it, it knows everything, searches the depths of who we are and leaves nothing unexposed no actions we seek to hide. No words can go unheard. No thoughts are not immediately known. Everything about us is exposed by God to God. Luther hears that and says, that terrifies me. It only fails to terrify if we don't know God well or if we don't see ourselves in an accurate light. A contemporary Luther, a guy by the name of John Calvin, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, said this. By the way, he wrote this in his early 20s. I wasn't using my 20s that well. Um, read this. I mean, you, it's amazing work to read the Institutes of Christian Religion. There's a really good uh, published uh, uh, translation now. It's really, really good. He wrote it in his 20s. Oh, we need to expect more. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinize Himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. A person with a biblical worldview sees himself or herself as imperfect, and he sees God as perfect and righteous. Therefore, a person with a biblical worldview sees God on his own as dangerous. C.S. Lewis, writing some years ago, uh, but closer to us than to Martin Luther or John Calvin, he expresses well in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I actually gave you the whole thing there. I'm going to read it. This not the whole Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. That would take a little bit longer. He says this, I just love this scene. It, is he a man? 
asked Lucy. This is a children's book. Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods. He's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susie. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And there lays the dilemma. He's so good. He's everything we want. And he is dangerous. So we need to be near God to be fulfilled, but to be near God is dangerous. Therefore, we need an intercessor, somebody to stand in our place before God. And this dilemma forms most of the story of the Old Testament. A few weeks ago, Pastor Charlie walked us through some of the high points of the Old Testament. And hoping that's a bit fresh, I thought we would repeat some of that together because you've got to see What's going on in the big picture story of the Old Testament to understand why this need for priests, or I'm afraid all you'll do is say, well, that's just a Jewish thing. So, you know, we're just going to do this. Um, my class goes through this all the time. They, they're really good at this, actually, um, walking through the Old Testament. So let me, Jack, can you, uh, can you come up here? I'm serious. I know you're like, are you really? Yeah, I am. Sorry, Dad, I know this has got to be a terrifying thing for a father. <laughs> if you'll give us your dad's credit card now, I'm just playing. All right, can you give us a testing? Say testing, testing. Testing, testing. All right, so Jack, you're going to help me. I'm just going to ask you questions. You'll know the answers, I promise. I promise. You don't, don't look. All right, all right, here we go. So, Jack, what happened in Genesis 1 and 2? That's exactly right. We have the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So man, in Genesis 1 and 2, man is created, and he is created good, and he's created happy. Things are going great. But Jack, what happened in Genesis 3? Exactly right. The fall happened. Is that thing still on? Test, test. Test, 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 test. Going to go. This is what happens when you get crazy. Test, test, test. Will one of these work by any chance? No? No? Yes? No? No? Yes? No? Alright. Jack, do what you do best. You're going to shout. Okay? So, we're asking you to shout in church the answers. Okay? You got it? You can shout? Okay, here we go. So, we have that it was, things are going well. Genesis 1 and 2. God created them. They were happy. 
Then they fell, and as a result of the fall, we know they get kicked out of the garden. So catch it. Nearness to God, happy. Fall, what happens? Nearness taken away. You got that? That's, that is key to getting Christianity. All right? So nearness is taken away. So that's just it. No, no, no. Genesis chapter 12. Jack, what happens in Genesis chapter 12? That's yell it. The call to Abraham. Very good. All right. So the call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God came to Abraham and he called him. He said to Abraham, I'm going to make you mine. And then in, Ge in Genesis 15, what happens? No, you got this. I know you got this. Abraham. The promise to Abraham. And what did he promise? He promised him three things. What were they? A people, a land, and a blessing. Perfect. So God, God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. And then Genesis 15, he makes a promise to Abraham. And he promises him three things. I'm going to give you a people. Well, why would they be special? Because they would be near to God. I'm going to give you a land. Why would it be special? Because it would be where God would reside and a blessing. And what would that blessing be? I will be yours forever. Nearness equals blessing. All right, Jack. So then we find out that the... What, oh, in, in chapter 15, he told them they would become slaves for how long? Four hundred years in Egypt. Four hundred years in Egypt. Who was the first one of uh, Jacob's children to become a slave? Joseph. All right, so they go down to Egypt, and then who leads them out of Egypt? Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt, and does, do they go straight to the promised land? They have to wait 40 years in the wilderness. Forty years in the wilderness, and so that is where we're going to spend quite a bit of time, uh, is in the wilderness. So you got God, again, rescuing His people, but now we have God being nearer to His people than He's been since the garden. We've got to deal with the dilemma. If there's nearness, it's got to be dealt with. That's the wilderness wandering. That's what God works out there for 40 years in the wilderness. That's covered, by the way, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they're taken out, and then who takes over after Moses? Joshua. Joshua takes over after Moses and he leads them where? To the promised land. He leads them to the promised land. Then after uh, they get to the promised land, who takes over after Joshua? A group of judges. A group of judges take over. So the judges are ruling. Things are going well. The people like it. And they're like, hey, well, let's just chill like this forever. Is that right? No, who takes over after that? Saul. Saul takes over. But why? Why did they get a king? The people wanted a king. What type of king? One that they can see and worship like all the other nations. Alright, so the people said, we want, a, we want more nearness. We want a king that we can see just like all the rest of the nations have a king. So Saul takes over, and then after Saul is... David. Then after David is... Solomon. So Solomon, he does something pretty special. What does he do? He builds the temple. Builds the temple. He builds the temple, and he puts it in the capital city. You remember what the capital city was? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, do you remember what it means? The city of peace. Alright, so Jerusalem is Jeru, that city, Salem, peace, the city of what? Peace. Sitting in the city of peace, the city of wholeness is what? The temple. Why does the temple matter? It's where what? God dwells. There's nearness there. Things are going great. The people continue to obey and they're still there today. Actually, that's not what happened. What happened after Solomon died? The nation split in two. They split in two, and then some of them get taken by they get taken by a group of, a couple groups of people. Do you remember those? The Assyrians. 
That's right. And the Babylonians. They get taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. That story takes you from 1 Samuel all the way through the rest of the history of the Old Testament. They get taken. And you also can read that whole event through the major and the minor prophets. They don't stay there. They're there for 70 years. And then they come back and they rebuild the city. That's told to us in what book? Nehemiah. And then they rebuild the temple, and that's told to us in what book? Ezra. Ezra. Jack, fine job. Thank you, sir. All right. He should get his allowance, I think, Richard. I think so. So, that, that's the, you heard, that's the history. Nearness, everything's great until there's sin. If there's nearness and there's sin, there's trouble. So that has to get worked out in the, wall, in the wilderness. That gets worked out in the wilderness because what we have to find out is how is it that God can dwell with these people? And we know that the people found it to be an issue because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 and 19... This is what they say to Moses. Moses has been up on the top of the mountain with God. God descends down, nearness. The people are at the bottom of the mountain. Moses takes a break, comes to the bottom of the mountain. They are at the base of the mountain. And what do they say? Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood Listen, and they stood far off. We can't deal with this nearness. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we what? Die. They got the argument. They want to be near God, but they don't want to be near God. You talk to us. We don't want to talk to Him. Lest we what? Die. We need an intercessor. We need an intermediary. So in the books of Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy, we see God laying out how it is He'll encounter His people. And He's first going to encounter them in a tabernacle. So in a, kind of like a temple RV, uh, something like that. You can move it around, right? So God is going to come down and dwell in the tabernacle in, with His people. And then... He's going to give a certain group of people to stand in the gap. Instead of God asking every firstborn male to go be that intercessor, God does something very kind for the people. He says, I'm going to set aside one tribe. And that, that tribe will be the priests. That's the Levites. That's recorded in Numbers 3. Numbers 3 verse 45 says, Take the Levites. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle, the Levite shall be mine. I am the Lord. Do you see the substitution that just happened? You owe me all the firstborn, but I'm going to take what instead? The Levites. There's a substitution that's always involved in the idea of priesthood. It's set up there in Numbers. So God selects, just like we see out of Hebrews 5.1, He selects priests from among the people. God does the selecting, and He says that it will be the Levites who will be the priests. 
Not only must the priest be selected. So, by the way, just because a person was a Levite doesn't make him a priest. Not while all priests were Levites, not all the Levites were priests. So we have another group of people who uh, the uh, who are who are Levites who are not of Aaron. Only the family of Aaron could be the priest. So you see that in Exodus 29, verse 44 and 45. I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron also and his sons will serve me as priests. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. Not only must the priest be a man selected by God, but if he's going to act on behalf of the people, he must be holy. And that's where Leviticus 21 offers us very graphic detail of the level of holiness, of purity, and perfection required of the priest who serve in the tabernacle and in the temple. So verse 6 seems to summarize the intention and the extent of this very well in terms of the holiness. Leviticus 21.6 They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore, and they shall be holy. So a man must seek to be holy and upright to serve in the temple. God tells Moses to go tell Aaron to be explicitly warned, you are dealing with dangerous business. God says to him, I am, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they abstain from the holy things of the Lord of Israel. This is Leviticus 22, which they dedicate to me so they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. And it did not take long at all for the harsh lesson to be learned for the family of Aaron. His two sons, Nadab and Abihu, decide that they'll just shortcut the right procedures and how they offer the offerings to the Lord. And if you read through, you, if you've read through the Bible, you get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you feel like you're in the thickest mud, right? Like, what in the world? I'm telling you, you got to deal with the dilemma. You've got to deal with the fact that God is dangerous to unholy people. Leviticus chapter 10. Listen to this story. This is real. This really happened. Now, Nadab and Abihu, this is verse 1, they're the sons of Aaron. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered it unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They didn't follow the rules. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. This blows your mind. How does Father, Daddy, Aaron handle it? Aaron held his peace. So Moses called Mishael and Elsaphon, the sons of Uzel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near me. 
carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them and their coats out of the camp. And Moses said, as Moses had said, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Don't tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Proximity to God is extremely dangerous. But the priest, the men selected to represent men before God, themselves were not holy. This is a problem that had to get dealt with. It's a huge problem. So they had to offer gifts and sacrifices for the people. They also had to offer gifts and sacrifices for who? Themselves. We see it in Luke 16. Luke 16, verses 4 through 6. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from them the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Well, it doesn't take you a lot of thinking to realize this program can't go on this way forever. If one's offering, the ones offering sacrifices have to offer sacrifices for their, their own sin, then won't we get ourselves into an infinite loop? We need someone to be a priest who doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. But how would that be possible as long as the requirement still stands that a man be a priest? You would need a sinless man. But that would still leave you with yet another problem. Say you get a sinless man. If he is sinless, perhaps he helps a generation, but he's going to die. This thing has to continue in, per in perpetuity. How do you deal with that? Well, that is exactly the fix that the author of Hebrews wants you to be in when you land at the beginning of the argument of Hebrews 5 all the way up through Hebrews 10. Well, among the priests, there was the high priest. The first high priest was Aaron. This position got a lot more political. By the time of Jesus' ministry, we actually have chief priests who are being elected by the Roman government. But the main point of the office of high priest at the inception was deeply connected to the Day of the Atonement. You might know it as Yom Kippur. It's the Day of the Atonement. On that day, everything in Jerusalem went to a standstill. Nobody worked. Nobody does, did anything. This typically, by the way, is celebrated sometime in September or October. It was a single day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, beyond the veil, the only time of the year, and appear before the presence of God. And there, he wore special garments. Why? 
He was bringing an atonement sacrifice. And it was understood that an atonement sacrifice had two roles. One of expiation. I know, it's late, and it's Mother's Day, and the preacher just said expiation. <laughs> and propitiation. I started with expiation. It seems a little harder. Expiation and propitiation. I wrote them down there for you. They're there. So this is how it went down. They choose two goats. Man, if you didn't want to be a goat around September or October. It was, and you didn't want to be a good-looking goat. I, if I were a goat, I would have one serious limp. I'm telling you. I would walk into stuff. I would, I'm, I would be sick. Alright. So they picked two very nice-looking goats. And one of the goats... They cast lots on them. Uh, one of the goats they would take and the priest would literally put his hands on the head of the goat and begin confessing the sins of the people. So you got a priest, he's got his hands on the goat's head and he's, he's confessing the sins of the people. And they would then let that goat go out into the wilderness. It was a sign of the people's sins being sent outside the camp. You take the sin and you get it outside the camp. The less fortunate goat, he was slaughtered as described in Leviticus 16. Then, verse 15, 16 of Leviticus 16, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, so inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the seat of atonement. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. He shall do for that for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. So the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies again and he now sprinkles the blood of the goats on the same place that he just sprinkled the blood of the bull for himself. The blood of the bull and the blood of the goats. Folks, this really happened. It was one of those moments in sermon prep when I've heard this stuff enough, I've read it enough, I just stopped and thought about that and thought, that really happened. Once a year, the high priest, the most holy man in the entire nation has these two goats. They're making noises. They're doing things they shouldn't. He takes his hands and he confesses sins over them. And then he takes another one as bloody as that had to be, the sounds, the smells, and he slaughters them. Why? Because the people wanted to be near God. But to be near God was dangerous. I am telling you, if you walk away with that understanding, nearness, sin, and danger, the Old Testament will come alive for you. It really will. When you're reading these arcane things in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, just stop and say, nearness, sin, Danger. That's it. Brothers and sisters, 
Do we understand God in this way? We're drawing quickly to a close. I hope you will understand this is the biblical picture of God. It is heresy to argue that the God I just described to you is the God of the Old Testament and there's a different God in the New Testament. If you believe that, you are wrong. And the book of Hebrews stands to tell you you are dead wrong. It is the same God. I hope after hearing about this God, when someone refers to God as the man upstairs, you about fall out. I hope when you hear about what it took to get any access to God and how precise God asked for that, and someone tells you, well, me and God, I feel like we're doing okay. How dare you? This is the same God who smote two priests for offering a strange fire to the Lord. He has a way and only one way by which we will be saved. We cannot come up with our own way. How dare us! The only thing more dangerous than the dangerous business of being the people of God is to be an enemy of God. That is a terrifying reality. And yet the Bible says that every single one of us is an enemy of God if we do not believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the wonderful news and you're going to see this come alive. Oh, it's so hard not to preach all the rest of Hebrews right now. But the looks on your faces, I'm convinced not to. The Gospel is that the perfect sacrifice is Jesus. He's been offered. Jesus is better. Romans 5, verse 8 through 11. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath, the danger of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received what? Reconciliation. We receive what? Closeness. We receive what? Life and happiness. I read you the first stanza of Luther's hymn. Let me, I'll put the rest of it on there for you. Here you'll hear what it sounds like when a man who sees clearly the danger of God drinks deeply the cure of the gospel. Let me read to you verses 1, 2, and 3 of this hymn. In devil's dungeon chained I lay, 
The pangs of death, they swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life. Sin had made me crazy. Then was the father troubled sore to see me ever languish. The everlasting pity swore to save me from my anguish. He turned to me his father heart and chose himself a bitter part. His dearest did it cost him. Thus spoke the Son, You hold to me. For now on, You will make it. I gave my very life for You. And for You, I will stake it. For I am Yours. You hear the nearness? And You are Mine. And when and where I am, our lives catch the nearness, entwine. The old theme cannot shake it. That's the gospel. Let's pray.